Well, if you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 22 this morning, we're going to spend some time in this chapter. I'm going to read from verse 39. So we hear God's word. He came, that is, Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we'll end there at verse 46. Almighty God, please, by your Spirit, would you bring to life these words. Would you lead us into the garden and would you help us to sense and be aware of the events that took place there and what it implies for us even this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I took the theme this year uh, was just grace works and it's a marvelous theme because it allows you to to go in all sorts of different directions because there isn't really anything without grace. I mean take grace away, common grace and saving grace and you've got hell. Literally that's all you've got left. And so when you think about the idea of grace, our lives are constantly upheld and surrounded and sustained. We even exist by the grace of God. We have our lives by the grace of God. And so when we come to the scripture, we see that grace sometimes, as it were, the focus really comes sharply in on it. You know, it's like the camera so focused in on some moments. And this place in Gethsemane is one of those times when the grace of God is to be seen in sharp, sharp focus. And we just want to spend a little bit of time in this place this morning. This, I want to ask three simple questions about this. What is significant about the place? What is significant about the people? And what is significant about the prayer? And uh, just simply try and Understand what we can learn together. The place. We read here that Jesus went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. It, it seems from scripture that the Mount of Olives, which is close by Jerusalem there, was the place that Jesus would have gone to regularly for time out, for time of quiet, for time to pray, for time of peace, for time for reflection. Jesus was 100% human, the same as, as he was 100% God. And human beings need time out. 
the Jesuses need time alone, time to pray. It's amazing how much time Jesus spent in prayer. It's an incredible challenge to us that he who was so almighty, perfect, and powerful took so much time to pray in all sorts of situations. And we who are so limited and so restrained and so needy often find it hard to spend a little time in prayer. There is, of course, a mighty challenge in that itself. It's a walled garden, this place he goes to. It's a place of memories. It's an olive press. An olive press is significant because in that, the significance of the olive is that the oil comes from the olive by pure crushing. It's the crushing weight of the heavy stone upon the olives that produces the olive oil. And there's symbolism and, and significance in all of that because this is going to be a place of crushing for Jesus, crushing for us. But maybe what is more significant is that here is the second Adam as Jesus is both called and as he represents all humanity. Here is the second Adam who is about to encounter a first Adam temptation. Now, you know your Bible well, I'm sure, and you're aware that Jesus encountered temptation very soon after he was the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was led by the Spirit, interestingly enough. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was for 40 days and nights there. He was fasting, and then he was tempted of the devil. He's in the wilderness, and he, in the wilderness, he resists Satan clearly and profoundly through the truth of God's Word, which, as you think about it, Adam, the first Adam, was in the perfect garden and through his disobedience, he produced a wilderness out of it. And we have been living in that wilderness ever since. In various forms and fashions, all the brokenness that is in our lives and that we see around us is all reflective of the wilderness that is the consequence of the fallenness of man. So Jesus is now in the garden. He is the second Adam. And in that place... It's remarkable when you think about all the different aspects of that garden. Just contrast them. This is the sort of thing you would do later on today, maybe. You'd sit down with your page and you'd look at the first and you'd look at the second and then you'd reflect on that. Think about the first Eden garden. It was perfect. God said, it is good, it's very good. There's nothing in that whole place that mars it whatsoever. It's absolutely pristine. But look at Gethsemane. It's dark. It's foreboding. It has an atmosphere of threatening around it because just in the edges of that garden there are those who, in a moment, we didn't go on to read that, but the next thing says that while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, leading them to betray Jesus. Think of those two gardens. One is a place of liberty and joy and freedom where you can rest your head at any time and have no fears whatsoever. There's nothing around you to, to annoy you or disturb you. But Jesus is in this other garden where there's everything. The weight of all that's going on is so heavy. Think about the conversation that took place in that first garden. Conversation between Satan and Adam and Eve. 
a conversation that led to capitulation, but think of the conversation that there is in this garden where we read that Jesus goes a distance from them and he kneels down and he prays to his father and he says, Father. Such a contrast between these two gardens. And the one, Satan comes and tempts Eve and through that Adam and, and she says, my will be done. Isn't that what Eve says? She says, my will be done. But we go forward all those years and there Jesus, the second Adam says, thy will be done. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Adam, he takes the fruit from the hand of Eve. Jesus takes the cup from his father's hand. If be possible, let this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but what you will. Adam hides from God and Eve hide from God and they run into the creation to hide in shame. Jesus comes out into the open and seeks his father. The one in the first garden experienced sorrows that are their own voluntary as it were they're themselves that it comes upon them for their consequences but Jesus in this garden he takes our sorrows a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief it's so that alone is, isn't, isn't that such a when you ponder that and just take time just to really think about those two gardens and then you put yourself into that and that's where it starts to become very profound. And so Jesus is in this place of tremendous significance. That's what's significant. It's not just Jesus, as you know, it's Jesus, the second Adam in the second garden. That's what's so powerful about this. It's all the biblical code written all over it. And you see it and you say, wow, now I get a sense of what's going on. It's not just, just the exact things that happen there. It's where you put that into the big context of the frame of the whole of salvation history. That's so encouraging and so powerful. But what's significant about the people then? Well, it's their insignificance. I mean, that's what's significant about the people. Jesus brings with him Peter, James, and John. And it doesn't say that in all of the records, but in Mark's gospel, it'll say that he asked Peter, James, and John, who are the three that seem to be his kind of inner group? And he's working with them and he's preparing them. James and John are the sons of thunder, you know, who come, want to call down fire on the Samaritan village. Nice guys to have around. James and John are the two when they're on the way walking in the road or arguing with each other who's the most important and their mother wants to see who's going to get the best place in the kingdom and so forth. You know, the sort of people you would like to have in your team, humble people like that. You know, that really make great elders, wouldn't they? Ministers and leaders. And then Peter, of course, who's well known for his passion and his zeal and his impetuosity. And then his... Denial, which we'll see, of course, happens just a short time after this. But what does Jesus, Jesus says to them elsewhere. He comes to them in there. In this case, in verse 45, it says, And he rose from prayer, and he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. He actually comes three times. Other gospel records talk about 
Every time he comes, he finds them asleep and he says, why are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch one hour? Can you not even keep awake for an hour? Here are the people. Are these the people that you would have chosen to be your key people for the future? You think about it. James is going to lead the church. John is going to be the one who will finally be the final disciple who will receive the, 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 the apocalyptic truth of Revelation and so on on the island of Patmos. Peter will be the evangelist that goes out into the, the world. And you see, he was placing all the responsibility on these people. And yet they're so broken and so failed and so frustrating. Other times he would say to them just a little while before this, you know, how long shall I have to bear with you? is frustration. And so what's significant is their insignificance. What's significant also is their failure as disciples. That is just the people that willing Jesus is willing to do battle for. That's the amazing thing here. Jesus is in the garden on his knees the second Adam fighting on his knees, which is the most profound and powerful place to fight on our knees. He's fighting for these people. He's fighting for the failed people. He's fighting for the ones who let him down and disappoint him. He's fighting for the people who you would not have in your inner circle at all. And that's so encouraging that Jesus fights for those sorts of people that he is willing to bear the sorrows upon himself. I think it's such an encouragement isn't to us here. Such a wonderful encouragement for us just to see how the Lord works in our lives. There's a little piece in Narnia which stands out to me of C.S. Lewis. I just quote you this forward I quote and they went again and one of the girls walked on each side of the lion but how slowly he walked and his great royal head dropped so that his nose nearly touched the ground presently he stumbled and he gave a low moan Aslan dear Aslan said Lucy what is wrong can't you tell us are you ill Aslan said Susan no said Aslan. I am sad and lonely. Lay your hands on my mane so that I can feel you are there and let us walk like that. In his sorrow, they were not there to comfort him. But now he walks with us. He has fought through to the place where he has won. This is the glory of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, in all he does in his life and his sufferings and his death and his resurrection, he wins for you and I. He wins for you and I everything that we have. That's what's going on. That's the significance. Let's go into this prayer a little bit. What is then significant about the prayer? Significance of the place and the people, but, but the prayer. He asks for deliverance. That's what he prays. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He asked for deliverance from it. And that's important to see that there. To see how difficult this is. To understand that though Jesus has won everything for us that we have for life and for godliness, it has not come to us easily. We may take it easily. We may have come to the place of receiving it easily. We may even think of it as something that's very simple and easy and just, you know, uncomplicated. And it is all of that, but it's not, it's not without a massive cost to Jesus. Yes, he's wanting the Lord's grace to have his will done through it. Clearly, the humanity of Jesus is revealed here, and that's so important. It's really important that you and I have a human Jesus. We need a human Jesus to represent us as human beings. So in the garden, we see the humanity of Jesus so clearly. And that speaks so personally and affirming to you and I because you say, but can I be really sure? How can I be really sure that my sins are included in this and it's, it's about me as well? It's because when Jesus went through this, he went through this not only as God, but he went through this as a man. In the 11th century, the theologian, theologian Anselm of Canterbury, he said this, that in regard to our salvation, only God can save us, but only man must save us. That's the paradox of the whole thing. It requires that. And here in the garden, that's what we see, and that's what significance in this prayer. We see the human Jesus and we see his voluntary offering of himself. And that's so important. Jesus was not forced to do this. For that would have, and somehow would have taken away something from it. I lay down my life of my own accord, he says. No one takes it from me. Jesus laid down his life and he also received it back fully in control. He was all the time. We see not just the humanity of Jesus, we see the honor of the cup or the horror of the cup. It's the cup is the symbol of God's wrath. Oftentimes in scripture you'll read of the cup as in the revelation quite often the cups of wrath are poured out. It's a symbol and, and the idea of drinking it is like taking it all in, being willing to receive the, everything that's in that, the worst that's in that, looking into that cup and saying, wow, look what's in there. Look at all the, and I don't know what's in there. I don't think any human being really does know what's in there. Only Jesus knows what's in there. But when he looked into it, it, it struck him with horror. He's taken away from me. And sometimes when we think about these things, we don't appreciate that. We need to spend more time in these places. We need to do like Jesus and just be still and meditate on these things and pray for Holy Spirit help to understand the horror. And so when we realize today, when we 
share in the cup and in the broken bread, the broken body of Christ. It's the horror. It's not some sweet medicinal thing, you know, for just to kind of make us feel good. It's actually identifying, remembering, he says, remember. And we can't remember if we don't understand, can we? How can you remember something that you don't really understand? I mean, if you were getting married here at the front of the church and and you'd been so drunk the night before you knew nothing about it, could you remember it? Well, I was married 40 years ago, but I don't remember anything about it. It'd be hard to remember it. Somebody could tell you, well, you were there, and there's the photographs to show. And I'm sure that doesn't describe anything to do with your wedding or anything like that, but you know, the analogy is somewhat helpful. There it is, dark and uncensored. And in that cup he sees the cost of our salvation, the horror, the just judgment for it, something he has never known. When he looks into that cup, he sees a separation from his father, the break somehow that I don't understand, and I don't think anyone fully comprehends this either. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can the Trinity, the triune God, the three God, three persons in one, so inextricably bound together, so full of love, facing each other, how can they be separated? And yet Jesus says, the Father turned his face away from me. You and I, we read those things and we think, well, you know, it was just like whatever it was, I walked away. It wasn't like that. We have to ask, Lord, please help me to understand a little of what this cup was like. You and I think of the worst of things we've ever experienced in our lives and it doesn't come near it. And to pray for that is to pray for the weight of something that's so heavy to touch your heart that makes you forever broken and, re- and remade in Christ so that when you come to think as you will this evening about what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ, that you're in Christ, you're in Christ in this moment in Gethsemane and you're in Christ whenever he has risen from the grave, you're in Christ even as he's seated in glory. It, it's, it's sort of hard to figure it out, but it's incredible when we get little glimpses of it. It just, you know, it's like bursts of incredible glory in our hearts and helps us to understand just what it means to be a child of God, one by a Savior like this. And so we need to help to see it. So there is humanity of Jesus. There's honor of the horror of the cup. There's the hope in this Father's face. Do you know I love those words in the gospel? It says, my Father. He says, my Father is, is how the Greek puts it. My Father. Not as I will, but as you will. My Father, there is relationship there. There is the hope in that. His Father loves him. This is my beloved Son. He said that a number of times to the the disciples. This is my Son, my beloved Son. And in the midst of that, there's that little bit, you know, and you kind of read things and then you say, didn't notice that always. Verse 33 says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. I mean, what does that look like? You know, have you ever seen an angel? You might have and not known it as the scripture says, but there was an angel from heaven came. That's the Father's mercy in the midst of it all. He sends that lovely mercy to him and strengthened him. How did he strengthen him? I don't know how he strengthened him. I asked that question. That's what we should do with scripture. Ask questions, interrogate it. What did it mean? He strengthened him. What's that word mean? 
Well, does it mean he physically strengthened him? Maybe. Or did he strengthen him by what he said or what he affirmed or was his presence a sense of, oh, just to know my father has sent someone so necessary. But all of this then brings us to think this account of Jesus in his hour of decision, surely it forces us to think about our own decision. Gethsemane was Jesus by the grace he has for us, fighting for us. He decided, not my will but thine be done. He made a decision. He made a very conscious decision because he could see into the cup and he made the decision, I'm going to take it. I'll drink it all. But what that does, I think, is it, it, it helps us. And I think the application and part of that is surely is that we have to then think, well, yeah, reciproc reciprocating this decision of Christ, what about my decision? Interesting that Jesus comes back to the disciples and he says to them, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And then he said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you enter not into temptation. He's asking them to make a decision. They're just going to, when they get up off, they've been sleeping and he from praying, the next thing they will meet are those who have come to arrest him. And the story is, will unfold over the next sort of 36, 48 hours of all that's going to happen. There'll be a lot of decisions will be made in the next two hours. Peter will have to decide, well, you know, I said I would follow him even to death and beyond, but will I? All the other disciples, they have to decide whose side they're on either. It's all, it's all going to unfold. And you and I are going to face the world of reality when we leave here, the world of reality in your home, the world of reality where you work, the real world of reality where life is for you, whatever that is, and it's there. It's there. Not just here, but it's there that you and I have to make that decision. Lord, I know I will be pulled and I will be torn and I will be tempted, as he says, watch and pray you do not enter a temptation but I need to make that decision there. Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Since you have won everything I need, I can make that decision. That's the, that's the glory about this. Since he has won everything you need, you can make that decision. You don't make it forever and ever. In one sense you do, I know, but in another sense you live it out day by day. Isn't that right? You live it out in each next thing that happens. Each next thing that happens. You don't have to live your life all at once. Thank the Lord. It'd be far too much. You just have to live out in each next thing that happens. I don't know what the next thing is in your life. When you go home, there'll be something next. Maybe making the dinner. It's maybe taking the dog for a walk. It's maybe meeting a stranger on the street or a friend or a neighbor. And what's your next thing? I don't know. It's a whole journey for you. It's, it's there. I can't decide for you. All I know is I have... I have what I have to do. I have to do it. When I get in the car and I go up the M2 again, that'll be how I drive my car most likely. Number one. Simple. It's as simple as that. 
It'll be how I treat the people that I'm on the road with. It'll be how I engage with others later on today as I go to another service and engage in a very different type of uh, context. It'll be how I treat my wife, Joan. It'll be how I deal with life. It's so basic, but so transforming. And it's so hopeful because it's possible. Because he has won it all for you. And as we remember this today, that I pray will be like such a galvanizing of that in our hearts. We've heard, and now, as God says, in in sharing in the sacrament, sacraments, but in this sacrament, we actually enter into a profound moment as he is present with us in a very powerful way. And I pray that he will just reaffirm all he has done for us and said to us. Father, by your spirit, would you just do that for us as we will come now, having heard your word, to then hear your word in the drama that is acted out yet once again in the sharing in the Lord's Supper.